Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you are interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics and leads IWP's Center for Intermarium Studies. At IWP, he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He is the author of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Hodakiewicz, welcome and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. It's business as usual at IWP. And we will continue again with World War I and its aftermath in the Intermarium. So far, we, we have covered the general developments until uh, 1916, uh, 1917 uh, in Western Europe as well as in the Intermarium. Then we paused to discuss nationalisms old and new in the lands between the Black and Baltic Seas. And we further scrutinized the two main propositions. First one was the Machiavellian Leninist proletarian uh, national sovereignty, which was absolutely bogus. And the second one was the liberal internationalist compliments of President Woodrow Wilson. Those two um, formulas mattered because because the uh, uh, Soviet, uh, because the Soviets won the revolution and won power in much of the intermarium as well as over the lands of um, the old uh, Romanov Empire. So they got to call the shots. Same for the United States. The formula advocated by Wilson became a yardstick against which uh, all developments in on the international scene were measured from uh, 1918. In any event, today we'll talk about the peace of Brest-Litovsk, about uh, the roots, the impact and the implications. First, let me read a few quotes to you regarding uh, Brest-Litovsk. General Max Hoffman essentially 
third in command after von Hindeburg and Ludendorff had this to say. As I considered an independent Polish state to be a utopia and still hold that opinion, I had no hesitation in promising the Ukrainians my support with regards uh, to the homelands. Helm or home. It, it was a region of um, Poland which Ukraine claimed. Second quote is from Count Otokar Czernin, a leading Austrian diplomat. The question of East Galicia, I will leave to the Austrian ministry. He wrote, it must be decided in Vienna. The question of Helm, I take on myself. I cannot and dare not look on and see hundreds of thousands star for the sake of retaining the sympathy of the Poles, as long as there is a possibility of help. It's interesting to note that in the English version of uh, Graf Ottokar Czernin's memoir, Im Weltkriege, the section, the question of helm I take on myself was removed to make him feel more balanced as a diplomat. And finally, Viktor Sukhenitsky had this, had this to say, when treating at some length the, the Helm question, the British Foreign Office author stated, the Polish influence is the strongest in the civilization of the region, but it has not attempted to impose itself forcibly upon the little Russians. Little Russians being, of course, Ukrainians. In fact, however, a similar political principle was applied not only in the Helm region, but throughout the whole Commonwealth. And this explains the alleged Polish failure to assimilate Ruthenia and the Ukraine. In plain words, the old Commonwealth did not attempt to forcibly impose on its citizens any definite civilization. It acted, no doubt, antagonistically to the theory and practice of its Eastern and Western neighbors and ultimately was destroyed by their more efficient centralized, that is autocratic governments and armies. And that will be the background of uh, our inquiry today. The greatest success of Germany was when it forced the Bolsheviks to sign the peace treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918. As far as the negotiations themselves, John W. Wheeler Bennett referred to it as, as tragic comedy. And this didn't only concern the composition of the Bolshevik delegation. Aside from, from the shrewd foxes of the revolution, such people as Jofe, Kamenev, and Trotsky, the Bolsheviks also dragged along a symbolic team 
consisting of the wretched of the earth, a former socialist revolutionary terrorist, a non-commissioned officer, a sailor, a soldier, a worker, and a peasant. The peasant, in particular, distinguished himself in a very eccentric way. He was essentially kidnapped, Shanghai, from, from a street in St. Petersburg. This was a complete, uh, completely accidental choice. The delegation on the way to the uh, railway station to negotiate with the Germans saw somebody who looked like a peasant. So they snatched him. And they first told him they would give him a ride to um, the, uh, the, the uh, train station. And then they simply dragged him as a diplomat to Brest. This very simple man soon discovered himself to be in his element, shocking enemy diplomats with a, with a singular lack of manners while eating and any restraint while drinking. He ate with his hands and he imbibed alcohol by bottle after bottle, publicly essentially letting his physiological functions take over. Uh, that's so much for comedy. Um, as far as tragedy, uh, as far as tragedy, it was definitely less funny that a leading uh, Russian military expert, as far as far as land armies uh, were concerned, a former Tsarist general who was also dragooned to be a member of the delegation, committed suicide. He simply could not handle the sight of Bolsheviks uh, selling off the inheritance of the empire. An ex-Tsarist admiral uh, who advised the Reds at Brest about naval issues was rumored to have been shot by the communists as a hostage soon after the negotiations. Uh, incidentally, according to, this is according to German sources, but uh, according to uh, US research, he simply uh, died of a heart attack. Be it as it may, also not comedy, but tragedy. So much for background, so much about the so-called representatives of the people and so-called bourgeois specialists. Uh, but there was more to tragic uh, comedy at Brest. Its basic melody was the use and abuse by Berlin and, Peters and, and uh, Petrograd or Petersburg, the rule of national sovereignty for uh, their own names. Both participants in, in the negotiations were completely undisturbed by the fact that there were no Poles, Lithuanians, Belarusians, Jews, Estonians, Latvians, and others at the negotiating table. Now, ostensibly, both sides negotiated about from the point of view of self-determination of nations but there were no others, just 
the Bolsheviks, and the Germans and their allies. Furthermore, all attempts by those little nations to be admitted to the negotiating table were brutally rejected by, uh, by the main powers, in particular by Germany. German and Bolshevik diplomats spewed platitudes about alleged rights of those nations to independence. At Brest-Litovsk, world opinion became a witness to essentially uh, the first practical application of the national self-determination principle ostensibly accepted by both negotiating sides. Uh, the Bolsheviks naturally pushed their narrative of proletarian self-determination to achieve the withdrawal of the, war, uh, of the armies of Kaiser Wilhelm from the territories of uh, the imploding Russian Empire. German military men uh, would bring up the uh, question of national self-determination to force the Soviet delegation to abdicate those lands so that the Second Reich could establish there its satellites or even directly incorporate those lands into, uh, uh, into the German state. Uh, for example, uh, in Ludendorff's opinion, the slogan of national self-determination was to be used during the peace negotiations only to make the Russians withdraw from the territories not yet occupied by the Germans, Finland, Estonia, Livland, Moldavia, Eastern Galicia, and Armenia. Viktor Sukhenitsky has explained the situation very trenchantly thus. Both sides were acting in bad faith. In fact, ni neither was interested in genuine national self-determination and each intended to achieve under its cover goals which by no means corresponded to the real wishes of directly interested peoples. For this reason, neither wanted to admit their representatives to the negotiations, although each ostensibly pleaded for their admittance. Under this Hippocratic, uh, hypocritical sign, the diplomatic process continued between November 1917 and March 1918. The Bolsheviks took the opportunity both to agitate for a revolution and to conduct diplomacy. This was a shocking break with the protocol. For the first time in civilized history, as 19th century people like to view themselves and their diplomatic process. Uh, so the Bolsheviks at one point, even during the negotiations, uh, attempted to foment rebellion in the German army. They called to German soldiers to murder their officers and even Emperor uh, Wilhelm, William. 
But above all else, the Reds attempted to drag out the negotiation process and sign nothing. Thus, they attempted to implement a formula of neither war nor peace. That would be Trotsky's solution to the predicament that uh, besieged Bolshevik Russia found itself in. But the formula was rejected and the communists were presented with, a, with an ultimatum. The Reds refused to accept it and broke off the negotiations. Trotsky ex exclaimed, we announced the termination of the war and demobilization without signing any peace. So he wrote to um, Lenin on January 15, 1918. This was supposed to be a brilliant innovation in international law, but it ended with a uh, Humiliating, humiliating catastrophe uh, for the Reds. Incidentally, this was not the only time in human history where someone advocated neither war nor peace. Any student of classics will remember that the Scythians in the steppes on the northern shore of the Black Sea, while uh, once defeated by the Greeks, refused to negotiate surrender, refused to negotiate peace, and continued for some time with neither war nor peace situation. I think it was about two and a half thousand years ago or so. And this precedent was pointed out during the Brest-Litovsk negotiations by obviously a classically trained German diplomat. In any event, the response of the Second Reich to the Bolshevik calisthenics was swift and decisive, despite the fact that the diplomats, the diplomats and civilian politicians of Berlin hesitated uh, with recognizing that the armistice had been breached by the Bolsheviks, Prussian military men responded with uh, an instantaneous war. They were blessed in it by the Kaiser himself. He ordered them to overthrow the Bolsheviks because according to the Kaiser, they were an emanation of, I quote, global Jewish Masonic plot. As a result, the Germans and their allies attacked the Intermarium to the east. They essentially met no uh, resistance. Red Army units either escaped or surrendered in mass. The Reds were pushed far, far to the east. Germany and her allies occupied practically all territory between the Baltic and uh, the Black Sea, from the suburbs of St. Petersburg all the way to the Caucasus. 
to force Lenin to yield to the Second Reich and its allies, Austro-Hungary, Bulgaria, and Turkey, a, a peace was signed, a separate peace was signed with Ukraine. Central powers guaranteed Ukraine her statehood and promised territorial concessions mainly uh, to uh, the disadvantage of Poland, which as we know was not present during the negotiations. But also there, were, there was a real prospect of um, serious loss of land by um, potentially by Austria-Hungary. A vassal Ukrainian state was supposed to supply food to its new allies. This was the main reason why Vienna, which was on the verge of starvation, so swiftly agreed to such a, an imperfect solution from obviously the Austro-Hungarian point of view. Further, Ukraine was to serve as a buffer against Russia and a counterweight against Poland. At the same time, Kiev, knowing about a desperate food supply situation of Vienna, forced the Austrians to yield and make serious concessions, territorial concessions, at, uh, to the disadvantage of the Poles, in particular in the Helm area in particular in the Helm area. Humiliated Bolshevik states soon returned to the negotiation table. It agreed to lose over half of its European territories. To a large extent, Bolshevik Russia lost access to the Baltic and almost completely to the Black Sea. As a result of the treaty, the Bolshevik state was essentially reduced to the size of the medieval Moscovite principality. In addition, the communists pledged to fulfill various material obligations as far as Germany and its allies were concerned. This, this was the beginning of, of the so-called Brest system, which in a revolutionary manner was based, at least in theory, for the first time on the rule of the self-determination of nations. Thus, it was anchored in an innovative way on the paradigm of nation states and not empires. In practice, of course, naturally, the empires continue to dictate, in particular, the Second Reich. A Bulgarian scholar, Borislav Cherniev, believes 
that in relation to Russia, in some sense, one can see the Brest-Litovsk Treaty as a piece of decolonization. Some in the West, sympathetic to the Bolsheviks, uh, continue to insist that Soviet Russia experienced a Carthaginian peace. Cherniev disagrees. And Cherniev disagrees and, and he counters that generally speaking, treaties which confirm the existing status quo are not draconian by default. In general, treaties that confirm the existing military status quo are not draconian by default. Meanwhile, Berlin had experienced a very quick evolution of its Ostpolitik, Eastern uh, politics. Earlier, it advanced very limited plans against Russia. Now those plans were revised because of the dynamically revolutionary development of events in the collapsing empire of the Tsars. The Germans increasingly relied on improvisation under the influence of a beneficial turn of events for Germany, of course, in this part of Europe. It appeared that ever bolder moves of the Second Reich led to implementing in life the expansionist slogan of Drang nach Osten, the push to the uh, the push to the east. Uh, however, Oleg Fedishin referred to the war aims of the uh, Second Reich as fluid and disoriented, and its Ostpolitik as based on disorientation and improvisation, as well as lack of precision and disorientation. At the same time, he admitted, however, that the aim at certain point in time of Germany was to create Ukraine as a, as a German satellite. Fedition further stresses that the German government never chose clearly and uh, uh, finally to support any one of geopolitical schools which um, competed on the German political scene during World War I. The development of the situation at the front and political changes abroad were more important than uh, particular influences of any one of the schools. Well, let us admit that it was the case, in fact. However, 
those theories supplied intellectual fuel, which propelled opportunistically possibilities emerging as a result of German, Germany's success at the front. Perhaps then it would be more appropriate to describe the situation as uh, tactical improvisation by Berlin reflecting an ever-changing war situation uh, while constantly attempting to correct and adjust operational moves to long pre-existing and therefore totally absorbed by the German elites geopolitical doctrines such as Ostpolitik and Lebensraum. In this intellectual context and cultural context, tactical and operational moves occurred hectically and they adjusted constantly and increasingly more and, uh, and increasingly more optimistically to emerging expansive strategic goals for Germany. At any rate, at the latest from 1917, Berlin prepared a system of vassalized state on the eastern borderlands on, on eastern borderlands of the third of the second eye. In this way, the Germans wanted to introduce a cordon sanitaire, protecting its empire uh, from Bolshevism. Those lands were subject to very ruthless and severe occupation policy, in particular as far as economic exploitation was concerned. Vienna tried to keep the pace up with Berlin. As a result, in Ukraine, for example, the Ukrainian economic relations with both of those countries began to resemble increasingly the relations between uh, a colonial power and its uh, uh, conquered territory. So or its dependency, conquered power and its dependency. In euphoria of the vision of an apparently coming victory, there were no more boundaries to strategic planning. In extremists, there were fantasies about creating German colonies, for example, on the Crimean Peninsula, and and, and setting up permanent geopolitical facts uh, which would guarantee Germany control over Russia and Caucasus as well as, as the Near East, the Middle East, and even India. But there were also plans to, ex to, gradual, to expand gradually um, the German living potential, as it was called, so colonist 
two lands which would be conquered successively. In particular, great care was given to the borderlands. According to one variation, um, the Baltic countries as the so-called close countries, Nebenstaaten, they were supposed to become an integral part of the Reich. Not, this was not going to be based on equal rights, but as lands joined to Germany. We're talking Angliederung, a sort of a absor absorption. Um, the Germans also were planning to guarantee the domination of the old uh, German Baltic nobility and uh, German Baltic burghers. Incidentally, they were referred to as the Balts, which is for contemporary people very confusing because we think the Balts are Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians. Well, the Balts in World War I German parlance were people of German origin from the historic estates. And those Balts were supposed to dominate uh, the natives, most of whom were peasants. In particular, um, the Estonians or Estonians and Lithuanians. However, there was a tendency to differentiate between Latvia and Estonia on, one, on the one hand and Kurland and Lithuania on the other. The first two uh, were treated as a neutral belt and the latter two were to be subordinated much more closely to Germany. In a sense, in the first half of 1919, there was uh, an attempt to promote the creation of a Baltic principality based upon a cantonal Swiss model. So the local Balts or Germans, they dropped even their past postulates to establish a union with Prussia and were looking for a different monarch for their state. However, by the end of 1918, there was a dramatic chasm between, on the one hand, uh, the German armies occupying those lands, and on the other hand, the governments and parliaments of the Baltic lands. The civilians argued for and fought for um, nation states based on parliamentarism. And they also ditched German Balts as partners to embrace Latvian and Estonians. That was happening within uh, the German political elite, civilian. Uh, the, uh, uh, the German military command countered such move and endeavored to establish 
native armed forces, which would be dominated by the German minority in the Baltic regions. In particular, Lithuania was viewed as a great puzzle for Berlin. Many options were considered. None of them took the interests of the Lithuanians under uh, the consideration. All that counted was geopolitical priorities of Germany. Uh, and the ideas about utilizing this Lithuanian space oscillated between incorporation, colonization, and at best, satellitization. Lithuania was understood either very narrowly, ethnically, so as Samogitia and uh, the Kovno area, or even more expansively with um, Suvalchizna or the Suvalki, Vilno, and Grodno area, but Lithuania was never, by the Germans, viewed as an entire old historical Grand Duchy. Neither of such combinations had any room for a Belarusian state or even its, its uh, avatar or anything. However, embryonic institutions that pretended to be forerunners of a Belarusian state, in particular uh, propaganda outfits, were tolerated because the Germans wanted to use them and they were using them against the Poles. Poland was supposed to be retained in its dwarf form, either as a, as a dwarf around the Vistula or a, a larger entity, but pushed very far to the east, to the lands of the first and second partition, which would be joined to a, a very truncated kingdom of Poland. The, the western marches, marches of the kingdom of Poland would be cut off and given to Germany as a, as a security border, security belt. In this context, however, periodically the powers, central powers, would return to the so-called Austro-Polish solution in, again, a truncated form. As Viktor Sukhenitsky has shown, in January 1918, there was even a proposal for mass deportations of the Poles to cleanse new Prussian territories in what used to be western, northwestern reaches of the Kingdom of Poland from enemy element. This modified German plan of February 1918 sounded quite like a delicate version of certain elements of the so-called SS Generalplan Ost from 1945 except there was no mass physical extermination of the natives. Uh, the plan was predicated on, uh, the plan was predicated on an attempt to, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, 
germinates gradually of the front belt through the propagation and economic uh, uh, encouragement of the Jewish immigration to America and the Polish landowners to the Polish state, while poor Poles would be retained as farmhands for German colonists who would be supported by the German state. There were, there were also ideas of a possibility to compensate Poland, uh, Germany with uh, Polish territory if Germany resigns from maintaining Alsace and Lorraine. At one point, uh, there was even a, uh, uh, an argument for Vienna to give up Romania to Berlin and in turn, the Austrians would receive the Polish kingdom. Naturally, relatively speaking, the most favored option, alternative option was the so-called fourth partition of Poland. This would have been the easiest move, simply the restoration of the status quo ante. Geopolitically, such a move would take care of everything. And as far as propaganda, it would allow the central powers to bubble about just peace without annexations and uh, uh, reparations. The Polish politics of Berlin, as well as um, the German approach to all other countries of the Intermarium, uh, was characterized by great flexibility, pragmatism, cynicism, and opportunism. As Viktor Oshatinsky, uh, I'm sorry, as Viktor Sukhenitsky um, stated, as long as the war continued, the Germans preferred to have a free hand and delayed any definite decision on the future fate of the territories in the East. Their general aim was to control as vast an area as, as possible, but both the degree of control and its territorial limits depended on the results achieved on the battlefield. When out of necessity of war or for the propagandistic purposes, the Germans made any public statements of these matters, they tried to be as vague as possible and to give a frame without a picture. All that counted was the final victory. This was supposed to be possible um, and once the victory was achieved, then it would be possible to organize the intermarium according to the Prussian wishes. And uh, uh, as far as all the excitement and uh, political turmoil accompanied the peace at Brest-Litovsk, one should also take the social factor under the consideration. From the West, there was unleashed a wave of refugees from Russia. Everybody 
expressed his will to return home. From whence they were chased out by war and also forcible evacuation by the Cossacks. Most people wanted to break free from uh, the grip of the Bolsheviks, but some wanted to spread the revolution. However, Berlin deluded itself that it had everything under control. Thank you very much. Until the next time, stay safe and well. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Hodakevich and all of you who tuned in. If you're interested in attending other upcoming events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you.